This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Good quality management documentation is essential for effective quality management system, and it can be more than just logs and paperwork. I'm your host, Brian Wagner. In this episode of the Engineering Quality Control Podcast, I'll be talking with Lakevia Jackson, Quality Manager at Mortensen, about the best practices for quality management and documentation. So let's jump right in. So now I'd like to welcome our guest for today, Lakevia Jackson from Mortensen. Lakivia, welcome to the Engineering Quality Control Podcast. Thank you, Brian, for having me. Could you just get started by maybe telling our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do on a daily basis? My name is Lakivia. I'm originally from Prince George's County, Maryland. I'm a quality manager. And what my day-to-day typically is that I'm coordinating a lot with a variety of trade partners, uh, what we like to say, more like contractors and um, designer kind to make sure that we are developing a product and constructing the product to meet the design specifications or pretty much just making sure that is the quality that the end user is looking for. A lot of times those quality parameters are either in industry standards or they may be in the actual scope of the project. So I want to dive in a little bit more to that stuff, but before we do, you're involved in many professional associations and were actually selected in 2014 as the Black Engineer of the Year Student Leader Award recipient. Can you tell us about how that experience has helped your career? That experience was kind of uh, based on my leadership um, and or volunteer roles that I uh, participated in in college. And it really gave me the experience to actually deal with a variety of personalities. It taught me a lot about conflict management and it also gave me opportunities to generate my management style before actually getting into the working world. It kind of gave me my confidence um, or made me feel comfortable once I was able to step into kind of corporate America. And then also one of the things that a lot of those experiences did for me was it's really sometimes a challenge to like really motivate volunteers. So motivating volunteers, like people who are getting paid to do something, to actually do things and do it well was a skill that it kind of, um, that acquired that it translated very well into the working world, kind of motivated by uh, our paychecks or fulfillment of the, the work. So let's get into a little bit of what you're doing to be successful with quality management in your day-to-day work. You said you're dealing with a lot of different entities and, and different things, trying to take that, make that idea into something real, right? So what purpose or benefits do you believe in as far as maybe like logs or checklists and that other, like what quality management documentation are you doing 
to help you be successful? I use a lot of logs. Um, I typically uh, use logs to track material. And um, as far as like what the lead time is of that material, when the material is needed on site, Sometimes the submittal has to be reviewed by multiple entities. It might need to be reviewed by the authority, um, AHJ, the authority having jurisdiction. So those logs help me be able to really know what are the different steps that I need to kind of get through in order to even produce or uh, procure kind of any of our uh, different products or materials or different systems that we have to install. Now, did you make those logs or are you using like a technology to do that? You know, my company has different like technologies and different systems that they, you know, typically have us use to kind of generate different logs. And and most companies do have different ways that they want you to manage their uh, quality management process. And it may be a technology or maybe as simple as an Excel sheet. There's a lot of power to Excel, but sometimes it can be too complicated, I think. And sometimes the technologies can simplify things, but then they don't necessarily do 100% of what you're trying to do. I like to use Excel, but I also see the benefit of some of those unique technologies. I have some notes here about like submittal registers and material tracking. What are some other important things that you like to include in those logs? Well, for the submittal register, the biggest thing that I like to include is, is if it needs to be reviewed by more than one person. Because you know, that's a hurdle that you have to get through before you can even fabricate and deliver the material. So sometimes like an average review time could be seven or 14 days. So now if it has to be reviewed by, you know, multiple entities and they want to review it either concurrently or after one another or in succession form, then that'll, you know, can stretch out to a point where you might have like a 30 day, you know, review period. And that's if you submitted everything correctly the first time. If you, you know, didn't submit something correctly the first time or something was missed or they have comments or they're revising and resubmitted, then you have to start that whole process over and that could ultimately delay your project. It's one of those things that I like to figure out which documents require multiple reviews because I want to make sure that, you know, my project team is aware of that and that we're just prepared for that as far as like scheduling the material as needed. All right. So in the design phase, I'm thinking what I deal with on a scheduling basis. So through the design process, we're kind of forecasting when we'll be finished. In this scenario, you're kind of working backwards to hit a milestone. How many weeks, how many days, how many hurdles do I need to put? And how does that align going backwards? It's a different perspective. And I think it's a great one to have. And I'm sure that every time that you miss that deadline, you add a couple more days on that next job, right? Yeah, or it could delay someone else installing if you have a following contractor, you know, like you need to install your carpet and you need your door frame there. And in order for you to do your transition strip and and something's delayed, it's like now I have to come back and, you know, install the the transition slip or install the the piece of carpet tile. So sometimes it can make it complicated for coordinating because now I might have missed a window with one contractor and I, I now have to reschedule them and they might have a four to five week, you know, backlog and when they can have manpower on site. So it's really important to be able to coordinate those because it could have a, you know, a trickle down effect. There's so many things that just rely on other things, either purposefully or unintentionally. So as you think about designing and improving these documents, what are things that you 
are doing when you implement new ones or apply them to your organization? Some of the things that I do is I try to make sure that I fully understand what the original scope of work is because sometimes when you're in a design process, you can kind of either miss some of the design intent that was, you know, interpreted in the actual scope of work and you might have to get like creative, especially in like a design build project, you might have to kind of get really creative and working very closely with the architects based on, or architects and engineers, you know, based on what's available or you might have some things with existing conditions. So a lot of times you might need to do virtual design and construction, which you you might need to uh, get a BIM model to actually kind of see some of these things and see some of the complexities that you wouldn't see in 2D. You mentioned BIM and the virtual design construction or VDC, as I've also heard it called. What are some of the steps that you're taking in that early phases to review the drawings and the specifications in a 3D or in a model scenario that help you be successful in the long term and with the implementation? The biggest thing is is to make sure that things are coordinated properly between the different disciplines. And that's essential. Like an example, the your furniture is, is coordinated with your electrical power because you don't want to have your desk your desk and the core for your laptop is won't reach to the nearest outlet. So that's just things that you just have to think of in, in a logical standpoint. Cause sometimes it's really like common sense. A lot of times we put a lot of a theory and it's just like no seriously like how do you expect me to actually physically walk up and and plug in you know my laptop when the outlet is all the way across the room (laughs) that's something that i find very interesting (laughs) when i'm like writing rfis about (laughs) and stuff like that yeah because they had to put one on the wall but they didn't necessarily think about where on the wall right Mm -hmm. i'll tell you a short funny story about that is when my dad built his house He said he never wanted to use an extension cord in his kitchen. So like on the long wall where you might have normally two outlets, I think he has five. And the uh, sheetrock people were quite upset when they came in and saw all of the outlets in the kitchen. And now he built his house almost 40 years ago. And he has never used an extension cord yet because there's plenty of outlets and he knows exactly where they all are. I think about the stakeholders, the different variety of stakeholders as far as like the end users, because you might have a variety of end users or you might have a space that's like a collaborative space. So that's something that you also have to to make sure that they all knew what they, that they all might've had conflicting interests and that it was like noted in like the scope of work documents. So sometimes you have to like coordinate with the stakeholders to like really figure out what they want or if they need to like compromise on, on what they want if it's multiple stakeholders. That's something that, that I also think about when reviewing and then and then sometimes I think about contract, contract documents. When I say contract documents, I was at a conference once and they said like capital C, capital D contract documents, which is more so like the actual contract with the owner and the the actual scope of work or maybe like surveys that they've given out or like different sketches or drawings. And that sometimes people just think contract documents are just the specifications in the drawings, but sometimes it could be a lot of a lot of different other things that the client gave um, when you actually like bid to do the job. Because they're the ones that have to deal with it when it's all said and done, right? Mm-hmm. 
do you guys take a step maybe in between the virtual world and the modeling world before you might like just completely build something, especially if there's some questions about how something might fit together or work like mock-ups or. The VDC effort is, is through the entire life cycle. So you'll do BIM modeling through the design phase of it, as well as BIM coordination in the construction phase of it. And then also, you know, you'll use the BIM virtual design construction, like the BIM software to do quality checks, like to verify that things are installed in the proper height and that they went in the proper order. And that, because sometimes a contractor would be like, well, I got to this space first. So I installed it, um, you know, too bad. And we'll, we'll have to say, well, let's pull up the model and figure out who actually was, you know, supposed to go first. And then sometimes people have to reinstall their um, material or like shift it because a lot of times, you know, like if we do that, then we have rework. We don't, we want to reduce the number of rework. So that's just something that you, you know, the BIM model kind of help reduce the amount of rework. And just making sure that the foreman or the people actually like boots on the ground have like the access and training to the stuff. Because now some of the BIM software, you can use it on the iPad or your iPhone. So just making sure that you're like training individuals to see it. And once you, you kind of train them to use it, like it really helps eliminate a lot of conflicts between different trades in the field. Do you use mock-ups or other things to help with that transitional period? Yes. Mockups are really good about seeing if it if it really works because we've looked at it in 2D, it worked. We looked at it in 3D, it worked. Now when we actually try to go build it, does it does it work? So a lot of times you use that to kind of see that, or even a test to see if the product can withstand what you know the intent was, or if you're wanted to kind of go see different ways of what it might look like. Um, mockups can be different sizes. It can be like a real huge mock-up that's like a, a little mini building, or it could be just something that is like a two-by-two two, just kind of cut out. Because I know I did one on like a, a a little mini roof mock-up. We just kind of did that in a little small scale. So that was kind of cool to do that. But mock-ups are really good also to, for like workmanship. I think my favorite thing about mock-ups that sometimes people – might not always think about is when you have changes in personnel, it's really good once you do your safety orientation and say, oh, okay, here, let's have a quality orientation and let's go look at all the mock-ups that pertain to your scope of work and then see if you have any questions or if we need to um, refer back to like the mock-up report where we've documented each step of um, the installation just to make sure that you understand this because sometimes projects it could be one little thing that's different on a project than all the other projects. And sometimes people are coming to the project thinking like, oh, I always do it this way. You know, I always say the six most expensive words in business. Is, that's what we've always done. So that's one of those things where I'm like, okay, um, after reviewing all these mock-ups, do you have any questions? Or is this something that you've done on your previous project? And most of the time I'll discover that something was kind of like slightly different or like the foreman or the superintendent or, or whatever the worker or whatever the installing trace person is um, doing the work, they'll be like, oh, okay. And then I'll definitely expedite, you know, like the process to make sure that the work is installed safely and, you know, with quality. I find the mock-ups to be very beneficial from the product, from proving that the product is 
the looks of quality as well as just making sure you work out the kinks and the workmanship. I mean, you're basically establishing the expectations on a very small scale or a relative scale to what you expect those contractors, those subs to do. And I'm sure that the owner and the end user is somewhere involved in that mock-up. And one of the recurring themes that I've heard with several of our guests is to have successful quality management is a lot of the time, it is just the communication and establishing those expectations and avoiding the assumptions as much as possible. Because like you said, one contractor's normal way of doing it isn't the way that you expect it to be done, maybe in this circumstance. Yeah. And then it's also set the expectation ahead of punch list. When you know, like if you have, you know, rooms that are repetitive, let's say you have like, you know, like an office building, you're going to have all the same offices set up. So you might have five different styles of offices. You have all the bathrooms that might look the same and have the, all the same material. They just might be smaller or larger. So it's good to just say, okay, let's do one bathroom or let's do one office and then kind of set the standard or kind of get a feel for what the end user or and or inspector is expecting um, ahead of like your final punch list. So that'll, you know, help you achieve zero, you know, punch list more so towards or a relatively low number of punch list items when you get to the end of the project, when you do those mini kind of like milestone mock-up kind of areas. We have listeners of all ages, some that are early in their career, some that are more well-established professionals, and they could be considering a change. They could be considering how they can do better in their job. But what suggestions would you have for someone who's considering a career similar to yours with this kind of emphasis? Well, for one, it just depends on, on you know, where you are. With, with entry level, I would say get involved in, in different student organizations or young professional um, organizations if you're about to graduate or a recent graduate. I would do that. And then also you can attend different career fairs you know, to get exposure because a lot of companies have the quality management position in construction more. So I know every company I've worked with or anybody that, you know, that I know of of different companies, they all have quality manager positions. It might not be in every group in the company, but they might have one or two in the company. So I just feel like you just have to ask, do you have a quality manager position? As far as experienced professionals, people that are already in the field, I think, the refer- referral is kind of the best way to kind of go about that or just kind of connecting with, you know, um, different companies and also going to career fairs and different organization events. As far as like experienced professionals, I think the, the best way to go is probably just referrals and just interacting with people because most programs have a uh, referral, you know, initiatives. You know, I know Mortensen does. So if anyone is interested in joining Mortensen, feel free to connect with me on, on LinkedIn and, and um, we can see if it's Mortensen's the right fit for you. It's great advice. I think every conference that I've ever went to, every event, I feel like I do walk away with some other perspective that may seem very irrelevant. And at some point, it just comes back to be something that, oh, that's what they were talking about. Or I remember this one person told me about this thing. It's just gathering that information and gathering that experience. And we like to have, with every episode, what we call the power of experience segment, something that you maybe wish you knew earlier in your career or that you wish somebody would have told you before. This is your opportunity to share that information, that idea, some piece of advice for our listeners. 
understanding the different roles of the people around you, like when you're in an organization, getting that exposure and just asking certain questions, it'll really kind of open up your mind or your exposure to different opportunities by just asking different questions of people and then just kind of taking the opportunity of just trying different things. Because I know I've rotated through a different uh, bunch of positions where I was able to still do quality work. And I might have had like my job position was one thing, but I might have did a variety of had different titles on different projects or different roles and responsibility on projects that just gave me different exposure and experience that if I would have said, oh, well, that's not in my wheelhouse or, oh, that doesn't really align with my job description, it wouldn't have given me a a well-rounded construction experience that I have. So kind of step out your comfort zone. Don't kind of limit yourself or or don't tell yourself no. Just go out there and try, you know, try to do something and see if it sticks. You mentioned connecting with you on LinkedIn. Is that the best way to connect with you? If somebody would want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, that's the news. So with that, I want to be courteous of your time. I don't have any more questions. Do you have any other final thoughts? No, I just want to make sure everyone has a quality day. So thank you very much, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Please remember that you can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at engineeringqualitycontrol.com. There you'll find a summary of the points that we've discussed, along with any links to resources and websites, including the link to Lakivia's LinkedIn page. Until next time, friends, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.